Have you ever had to sneak away in the middle of the night or sneak somebody away in the middle of the night? My wife and I had experienced several years ago when uh, our neighbor, <clears throat> I'll just call him Ron, elderly man, lived alone in his home after his wife died for several years. And his only living child lived many, many hours away in another state with his family. And after a car accident, Ron couldn't drive anymore. He was in his late 90s. It was amazing that he got around at all, but he learned how to do the bus and take the bus wherever he needed to go and was living uh, the best life he could as a 90-year-old. But he had a fall and needed to go into a rehab facility here in St. Louis. So he was there and we neighborhood kind of kept an eye on him and his son would come into town to take care of him while he was looking for a nursing home for him in the town that they lived in, in another state. And everything was going well. I remember talking with his son when he was in town. He was trying to find that nursing home. But one day he called me when he was in town, the son did, and he was in a panic. And he said, I gotta come and talk to you right now. So he came and we sat down in my office here at the church. And he walked in and he had a stack of legal documents in his hands and his hands were just shaking uncontrollably. And he sat down and he began to tell me that he had found these, this stack of legal documents in his father's drawer. And apparently during the recent years of his dad living alone and his health declining, there were some distant relatives who had kind of warmed up to Ron. And his son even was very grateful and said, isn't it cool that these distant cousins were caring for dad so much? Well, the legal documents told another story, something more devious. See, the, the relatives had talked Ron into signing over all of his possessions to him. His home, the inheritance, insurance policies, everything to sign to this distant relative and to be taken away from his only son. I spoke with Ron and assured him that his son had his best interest at heart. He agreed, he felt bad, he was old, confused, and scared, and this relative had taken advantage of him. So I sat down with Ron and his legal team and the son and, and the, the people at the rehab center and helped them to sign everything back over to his son. So his son was now, again, the inheritor of all of his estate. And then to our surprise, a week later, the son found another stack of legal documents that were in his dad's room. This time, fortunately, they weren't signed yet, but the distant relative had gotten to his lawyer and said, they undid this, let's do it again, and had another set of documents that they were going to have Ron sign to take everything away from the son and give it to this relative. So the rehab facility director said, you guys just have to get him out of here. Got to get him away from St. Louis. So they called, uh, my wife and I and Sarah took Ron and we we're in the cafeteria area or the, the dining hall area of this rehab center. Well, I went into Ron's room and I was frantically throwing everything that he owned into boxes and taking it out to the car and in the cover of darkness, it was probably 10 o'clock at night when we got it all together, we put Ron in the car and we sent him off to another state and as we were leaving the parking lot, we saw some other friends coming to visit him in the nursing home only to find, or in the rehab center only to find that he had been taken away. So that was my experience of sneaking someone out under the cover of darkness. It was, it was a, a privilege. I, I later did, Ron, officiated Ron's funeral and that relative was like there sitting in like the second row, first or second row of the funeral and they like totally oblivious to anybody's views of him. But was finding those, was finding those documents in that drawer just coincidence or was it something more? 
That's the question we're gonna look at today. Because the passage we're talking about today in Acts 23 has a similar kind of sneaking out in the middle of the night and was this the circumstances that led to this coincidence or was something more going on? So last week we were in, we ended kind of Acts 23 verse 11-ish. I wanna read Acts 23, 11 because it sets us up well for today. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, be encouraged, Paul, just as you've been witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. And then in verses 12 to 15, we learn of this sinister plot, a group of 40 Jews banded together, and they made an oath that they would not eat or drink anything until they had killed the apostle Paul. The leading, they told the leading Jewish priests and the elders about their plan, and they invited them to join in this conspiracy. What they wanted was the high council to ask the commander where Paul was in prison to bring the apostle back for another round of questioning. And while he was on his way back to the Sanhedrin for the second round of questioning, that's when they would ambush him and they would kill him. Now in verse 16, we're introduced to Paul's nephew. It's the only place in all of the New Testament that we read about Paul having a sister and a nephew. Paul's nephew, the son, his sister's son, learned of the plot and went to the prison to tell Paul what he had heard. Now, it was common at that time for people to be able to go visit people in prison because they would be bringing food and caring for their relatives or friends who were in prison. So that part is common. But the nephew was in the right place at the right time somehow to hear this plot to kill Paul and then to go and tell his uncle what was going on. So after hearing his nephew's news, Paul, in verse 17, called for one of the Roman officers and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something really important to tell him. The officer took the nephew, where in verses 20 and 21, we read, Paul's nephew told him, some Jews are going to ask you to bring Paul before the high council tomorrow, pretending that they want to get more information. But don't do it. There are more than 40 men hiding along the way to ambush him. They vowed not to eat or drink anything until they have killed him. They are ready and just waiting for your consent. So the commander responded by telling the young man not to tell this to anybody and he ordered 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 mounted troops to get Paul out under the cover of darkness so that he would not be killed on the way to the Sanhedrin. He was sending him to Governor Felix in Caesarea. Now this transfer was probably gonna happen anyway. It was probably something that was in the works because Paul, because he had claimed his Roman citizenship, needed to go to a higher official than there was in Jerusalem. So he was going to Felix, the procurator in Judea. Felix had probably gotten his position through some shady deals, knowing the right people, and, and his brother, who also was a, an official in the Roman government. But he was very brutal in his suppression of any hint of rebellion. Felix was a horrible, horrible person. We know from extra biblical resources Luke doesn't give us a lot of information about Felix, but we do see the letter that the guard in Jerusalem sends along with Paul and this entourage to uh, Felix in Caesarea in Acts chapter 23, verses 26 through 30. From Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. 
This man was seized by some Jews and they were about to kill him when I arrived with the troops. When I learned that he was a Roman citizen, I removed him to safety. If we could pause there, that's not what happened. If you remember a couple chapters earlier, he's, he's sort of painting this in the best light for him. He was ready to beat and kill Paul if he needed to. And it wasn't he who rescued Paul. It was God who rescued Paul. Um, and anyway, that was his twist on this. Back to verse 28. Then I took him to the high council to learn the basis of the accusations against him. I soon discovered the charge was something regarding their religious law, certainly nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. But when I was informed of a plot to kill him, I immediately sent him on to you. I've told his accusers to bring their charges before you. So then we learn that the, the soldiers successfully sneak Paul out that night. It seems from verses 31 and 32 that many of the troops went about halfway and then they turned back, probably realizing that the danger was over, that Paul was far enough away from Jerusalem that he, was not, he didn't need that many guards to protect him. They arrived in Caesarea. The official delivered Paul and the letter to Felix. He asked a few questions. And then Felix replied in verse 35 that he would hear the case against Paul once his accusers arrived. He was then put in prison and Herod's headquarters. Now, one little detail that we don't know anything about that you've got to be curious about is what happened to those 40 conspirators who made a vow never to eat or drink anything until they killed Paul because something had to happen. I hope they had an escape clause from their vow because he was out of town. Luke doesn't give us a lot of details about that, nor about Paul's nephew or how Paul's nephew heard about the plot against him. It's kind of curious He's described as a young man, maybe a teenager, but we cannot miss in this story how crucial the role of the nephew is in Paul being delivered from this plot to kill him and taken safely to Caesarea. Was it just a coincidence? Was there something more? Was he at the right place at the right time? Or was God in his providential care putting him there so that he could be positioned to hear the threat and then to go to the prison that was accessible to him to tell his uncle. This is the story that gives us a good occasion to look at this. There's a theological term called the providence of God. We don't use that terminology a lot in our vernacular in church ministry, the providence of God. But as a theological truth, we encounter it every moment of every day. We don't use the term a lot, but as the truth of it, we encounter it every day. The concept of God's providence is kind of related to God's sovereignty, but it's distinct from God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is God's control over all things. The providence of God is how God cares for his creation with that sovereignty. His providence is how he applies that to us, all of his creation, including you and me. So I'm gonna use this story as an opportunity to talk about the providence of God. I wanna talk about some of the common counterfeits of God's providence. We're gonna define the providence of God. We're going to share some examples of the providence of God and then talk about a fitting response. First, let's talk about the counterfeits. The counterfeits of God's providence. There are many of them. I'll just mention three. One counterfeit of God's providence is fate. Fate is believing 
that something happens totally outside of human involvement or divine involvement. Fate is just something that occurs. God's providence is not fate because the providence of God works within and is involved in our decision-making. It's involved in our choices. It's involved in our circumstances. It's not fate. It's also not luck. Luck is a random chance. The providence of God is not just some random chance. The providence of God is intentional and it's personal. Another counterfeit of providence is human progress. That humanity just gets better. We're thinkers, we're reasoners. We, we, we figure this stuff out and, and there's progress in humanity. And there is, and it can be very good. But as a replacement for providence, Human progress minimizes the provision of God and the divine involvement in something as simple as finding some documents in a drawer or a nephew overhearing a plot to kill the Apostle Paul. So let's talk about the definition of providence a little bit. Here's, here's one definition. There are many. Uh, this one I think is, is pretty straightforward. Providence is God's activity throughout history in providing for the needs of human beings, especially those who follow him in faith. Providence is about God providing for our needs. A fuller definition includes several aspects. So I'm gonna take the next couple of minutes. I'm gonna throw a lot of scripture verses at you to talk about different aspects or, or perspectives on the providence of God. If you get them written down, if you write them down, fine. If you don't want to write them down and you want them, shoot me an email and I'll be glad to send you my manuscript so you have them. But one aspect of God's providence is that it flows out of his goodness and love. The providence of God flows out of his goodness and love. Psalm 145.9 says, the Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all of his creation. And, and that's why I meant earlier, that there's a sense in providence of God is everywhere all the time. It's we have oxygen to breathe. We have, we have relationships that we can enjoy. Everything that we have is, is a sign of that providence of God in some way. Another aspect is that he holds everything together. Colossians 1.17 says he existed before anything else and he holds all things together. There's, there's a sense of order. There's a sense of, of God holding things together. Hebrews 1.3 also points this out. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down at the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. The providence of God also guides all events and circumstances in life. Nothing is random. Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Job chapter one, verse 12. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with, anything he, with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the presence of the Lord. There's a sense in which God, in his providence, guides things for our own good, for the good of his creation, for the good of his purposes. And keep that in mind. For our own good doesn't always mean for our uh, good feeling or for our pleasure, but for our good. That's really important. Providence also directs everything towards its appointed goal. In the church, we need to be reminded all the time, that's really what this is about. 
our being in the church and the mission of the church and the evangelism and the groups that we do and the fellowship and the spiritual growth, that's not just for us. That's for God's ultimate purpose to restore all things to himself and to receive glory for all things being restored and redeemed. Ephesians 1, 9 through 12, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would, be, would bring praise and glory to God. That's what this is about. So those are just some scriptures that help us to define what this is. But we're, we need to talk about how it works out in life and what the difference does it make for us. So we'll start with some biblical examples of God's providential care. They're everywhere in scripture. Uh, the one I'll start with is in Genesis 22 where Abraham was instructed by God to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering for him as a test of obedience. So Abraham took his son, he obeyed God, took his son to the Mount, Mount Moriah where he with all the supplies to make this offering, to build the altar. The boy in verse seven speaks to his father. If you know this story, you know what he has. He asks, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? And remember what God said? Or his father said, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. That's the providence of God. There's going to be a provision for this. I don't see it, but there's going to be a provision. Reaching their destination, they constructed the altar, uh, tied Isaac to the altar. Abraham lifted up his knife in obedience, and then he heard from God at that moment, don't hurt him in any way, for I know that you truly fear God, and you have not withheld from me, even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked, and what did he see in the thicket? He saw a ram that was caught by its horns in the thicket. He captured that animal and he sacrificed that animal instead of Isaac as a type of Christ being sacrificed for us. In verse 14, we read that in that, he named that place Yahweh Jireh or Jehovah Jireh, which means the place the Lord will provide. Now that's an amazing concept. Somehow that ram being caught in the thicket wasn't just an accident, wasn't a coincidence. There was a provision that God made for this ram to be caught, but the provision for the ram to be there cannot minimize that it was God who commanded Abraham to, to sacrifice his son in the first place. So there's a sense in which we're all gonna leave this discussion confused at a little higher level. You know, it's like, all right, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son and then when he's ready to do it, he says, okay, you've proven to me your obedience. It's not what I intended all along, but it was what I intended because I needed you to do it. So somehow that had to be real and God's provision had to be real at the same time. That's why this gets really, really tricky for us in our own minds to wrap our heads around it. So in verse, um, the unbelieving analysis of this situation would be it was just a coincidence the world would say there are a lot of coincidence and fate in, in life, and you people in the church attribute that to God. We would say, no, God is providentially in control, and you all attribute that to fate and luck. That's what truth would say. 
God's providence could be based, some people say it's based on his foresight, some people say it's based on God knowing all possibilities of choices people can make and, and what choices they're going to make and his providence puts things in its place and helps us to know his presence and care in the, every circumstance that we're in. Earlier in Acts, we saw the providence of God with the church in Philippi. Remember how generous the Philippian church was in their giving? In Philippians chapter four, verse 19, the apostle assures them of God's care and protection by saying, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. God will supply every need. Now, we get messed up because we think we need things that God doesn't say we need, but every need that we have, because they're deeply devoted followers of Jesus Christ to go to bed hungry tonight, who don't have the basic needs that we think sometimes God owes to us. But what you need, God will provide. The book of Esther, in, in Esther, God provided Esther with information not even known to the Persian officials to preserve the Jewish people. So there's a sense in which discernment can be involved in this providence of God and God caring for and providing for his people. Joseph's experiences in Egypt demonstrate this. Genesis 37 to 47, roughly in that part of the story of Genesis, Joseph's brothers just a big high-level summary, sell him into slavery, which ultimately leads to him being taken to Egypt, where he finds favor with Pharaoh after being in prison, and he was charged with governing the people and the distribution of food during a famine in the land, and his family uh, need to go to Egypt to get food, so his brothers end up before Joseph, who they sold into slavery and told their father had been killed by animals, and Joseph's assessment of what happened was, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. There's something we have to understand. I doubt that that was Joseph's assessment when he was in the caravan to Egypt, right? I mean, can we be honest? I, I doubt that he was then thinking, this, this is God's all along. He's really gonna put me somewhere. No, that's not what it works. God's providence often isn't visible to us. It's not evident in that moment. It's a horrible thing. It's a sinful thing. Seeing God's, seeing and recognizing and maybe being able to articulate the providence of God and describe it is something that we see as we look back and we put, things together in our lives. The doctrine of the providence of God is very clear. The problems we encounter are usually when we try to mesh what we know to be true with the circumstances of life. Sometimes it's hard to know what's, what, what's happening to me that's God's providential care and just the circumstances. We live in a broken, fallen world where there's illness and financial problems and relational problems and we lose our jobs and all kinds of things happen to us. I remember a couple in a church that I pastored many years ago had a series of setbacks in their lives, just really unfortunate, big things happened. One of which was they, they purchased an old home and the home that they purchased while they loved it, it was a beautiful old home. They found out that the inspector had not really done a good job and the foundation was in horrible shape and they needed to rebuild this whole foundation. And I remember the, the guy coming to me and saying at that time, you know, is God just trying to teach me something? 
Am I missing something? Is there some sin in my life that God's trying to tell me, get my attention for? Uh, and I said, I don't know, maybe. Have you asked him? Yeah, I'm praying all the time that God would show me that. Okay, okay, so you're praying all the time that God would show you if all of these bad things that happened are because he's trying to get your attention for something. And you're saying he's not told you anything, right? Or he's not shown you anything. No. So one of two things are happening. Either God's just playing a really funny game with you where it's like, yeah, there's something I want you to learn, but I'm not gonna tell you. I just want you to suffer and to, to languish in this mess. Or there isn't anything and you just need to keep going on and find even in that moment the sovereignty and the care of God. See, the challenges of understanding God's providence are just are normally encountered when we try to figure out the intricacies and the specifics of what the details of my life are. Years ago, there was a, a fire in Colorado Springs, a huge wildfire. And if you know Navigators Christian Ministry, Navigators has a big campus in Colorado Springs. And there's this castle-like building called Glen Erie on the Navigators campus. And the fire came up over the hill, over the mountain. And just as it was about to hit this Navigators Ministry campus, it, the wind shifted and it blew the other way and it was spared. And I remember someone in my church said, isn't it cool how God spared Glen Erie and the Navigators campus? I said, yeah. And this whole neighborhood that was then burned down. I mean, if you're gonna give God credit for that, does he get blamed for this? Because there were a lot of people that lost their houses because when it turned, it wiped them out. And that, that creates a dilemma. Okay, if you give God credit for this, if I get a flat tire and that flat tire keeps me from driving down the road so I don't get in this car accident, well, but what about them in the car accident? And I think providence helps us here. Providence helps us here. Because providence is able to say, not God gets credit or blame, but God cares providentially both, and it's evident both in this property being spared and God's providence is also displayed in this property being destroyed. And that's hard to accept, isn't it? Big part of my life, one of the most defining moments in my life was losing my dad. He died of cancer when I was three years old. I don't remember him at all. I grew up my whole life not having a dad. It was horrible. The shame, the lostness, trying to figure out life without a dad in my family, we're a poor widow family in this old town. Before my dad died, he accepted Christ as his savior. And as a result of that, he had a large family. Many, many of my uncles and aunts and many people in his family are now followers of Jesus and, and know Jesus. And they wouldn't have necessarily known Jesus except they witnessed my dad before he died coming to faith in Christ. So there, there's the providence of God. And by the way, the providence of God does not mean that was okay. It was horrible. And it was a result of sin and the fallenness of sin. There was nothing good about my dad dying and me growing up without a dad. But at the same time, God's providential care enters into that and shows us that he's going to work out his good and his glory. That's what we're talking about. God's providence is not ignoring, sometimes it's almost like the providence of God has to pretend evil isn't out there. But the very fact that we can identify evil, C.S. Lewis brought this up. The problem of suffering, the problem of evil in the world. 
shows that, that God can't be all powerful then. And C.S. Lewis basically said, no, the fact that you can understand and you can recognize evil shows God's providential care because the only way you can know that this is evil or this is bad, this is suffering, is if you had something that was a measure of good and righteousness. So God has given you in his providential care a moral compass to know what's right and what's good, so therefore you can recognize what's evil. I read one pastor use this analogy. It's not a perfect analogy. Analogies never are, but I wanna share it with you because I thought it was helpful. Suppose you and a friend have a mother with her three, or you observe a mother with her three children shopping at a shopping mall. Both of you are immediately puzzled at this mother's arbitrary behavior toward her children. She originally gives unequal amounts of money to two of her children and takes money away from the third. The day, as the day progresses, she tells one child he can buy whatever he wants, but insists the second must spend her money on clothes. Later, she tells the first to return some of what he purchased so he can buy school supplies. And at the same time, she takes most of the money away from the second child and gives it to the third. Not only this, but the third child, who up till now had no money, is allowed to buy whatever he wants. And to your amazement, this capricious, arbitrary behavior goes on all day long at the shopping mall with this mom and her three children. And afterwards, you and your friend sit down and try to figure this out. What just happened there? Your friend assumes everything was just decided by the mother, just arbitrarily. She was just making up all kinds of rules and doing whatever she wanted at the moment. But unlike you, you actually know this mom. And you know that that was really weird what y'all just saw, but she seems to be a decent person and a loving mom and caring and fair. So you go talk to the mom. You insist there must be something more going on. And you're right. You ask the mom what, hap what was happening there. And she tells you that she's been trying to teach her children something. And they've been working on these lessons about how the stock market works. And so in the weeks leading up to this little shopping experiment, she had made up some fake companies and given them stock values and they've been tracking the stocks and they went to the, they went to the mall that day and all throughout the day, she was fluctuating the values of their stock, which meant they may have a little bit more money today or they lose all the money. And you, guess what? When your stock goes down and you don't have extra money to spend on all these clothes because you need to get school supplies. So you have to take some of those back because you don't have that money. You thought you had it. Eight o'clock in the morning, now it's gone. So that was what it was. So the point of that analogy is so helpful. We assume sometimes, or it looks like God's some arbitrary deity who's giving good things to some people just because he wants to and bad things to other people because he wants to. So the family that's following Christ faithfully and serving him and doing everything right and they have a child with severe disabilities and their, their life is turned upside down or this drug addicted family has this wonderful kid who ends up being the valedictorian of their class and, and we wonder because from our side when we use our own adjust our own rules and judgments like that's not how it's supposed to be but there's something else going on and God knew that, that these people were going to be the best parents for this kid and they were gonna be the ones who were gonna love and nurture. And that this, this child who's a valedictorian might actually be able to help and help her parents to know a little bit more about what it's like to be responsible people. There's, just, there's something going on, we don't know. 
but it's the providence of God doing in our lives and in people's lives what he wants to do. Instead, we acknowledge we don't know what's going on. So let's talk about what we're gonna do about this. How do we respond to God's providence? Paul's nephew was in the right place because God knew he needed to be there. The highest response that we can give to the providence of God is thanksgiving and worship. To a God who makes a way for us and who shows his goodness to us even when we don't see it. Had a Bible college professor who said, never doubt in the darkness what you knew to be true in the light. And that's often, often the rule that we need to go by is I need to thank God because he's being good to me. His goodness is present and evident in my life. Another response is to keep faith regarding of the cir- regardless of circumstances, trusting that there are objectives and plans and spiritual battles going on that we're not aware of. And the one thing that I can do, even when I don't see the way, is to be the man that God's called me to be, to love God, to care for people, to have integrity in my heart. A third response, and this one's a little harder to swallow, but I think it's sometimes real, is to consider that God might be using my circumstance and my position to help someone else along their journey. I remember working with the church staff many years ago that this ministry team was having a real hard time getting along, a big conflict situation. The leader of the team was not leading very well. The ministry was suffering. They weren't getting along and the rest of the team was really unhappy with the person leading. So I sat down with all of them, we talked through things, and then I just talked to the team without that leader. And they were so unhappy because they weren't able to see the things happen in their ministry they wanted to see happen. And I said, what if, and, and I didn't know, I couldn't, there's no way I could know for sure, but I remember asking them, what if God wants to use you as a ministry team to help this leader grow? for his next assignment? What if God wants to use you providentially to help him to have some of these rough edges knocked off so that he can serve even better at his next place? Can God do that? Yeah. Even if your ministry's not doing what you want it to do right now, God can use you in that way. See, the providence of God, it's kind of a safety net. It's a reassurance in a world that often seems out of control that there's a caring, loving God who's always going before us and always making sure, regardless of what the circumstances look like, that we have confidence in him. The providence of God is found in the Lord telling Paul, you will speak the gospel in Rome and then providing an armed military escort for the first leg of his journey. And that armed military escort was not the way he wanted it because it meant someone wanted to kill him. He brings people and circumstances into your life at just the right time for your care, for your companionship, for your strengthening and for your protection. What a truth to rest in. Let's thank him for that now. God, we are so grateful in those moments in life where we don't see beyond our circumstance, that we can be confident that you are working for our good and for the good of everyone around us. 
we, we thank you for the reminder that there are no coincidences in life. There's nothing that just happens. Even the, the natural experiences in life that happen that may or may not be tied to some huge spiritual principle are not outside of your capacity and reach to provide us with your providential care. So I pray you would help us recognize that today and live in it. And I pray that you would get the glory and honor because this is really all about you and who you are. Amen.